There's been a bit of a disconnect with patient safety in the ambulatory setting. No one doubts its importance, but what belongs under the heading hasn't always been clear, perhaps until now, as care shifts more and more to the outpatient environment, but equally, as improvers better appreciate the interconnectedness of all settings to avoid patient harm, safety issues that need to be worked on in the office practice are coming more into view. That's why we're here today and what we're about to discuss on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're here live bi-weekly, and then you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Today's program has helped a great deal by our panelists who've both been digging into the ideas and some actual work on improving safety in the ambulatory care setting. I'm eager to get to those introductions, but first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Uh, thanks, Matt. Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is the chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the, t- the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure all that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through your speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. But a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause on the audio WebEx player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thank you very much. And if anybody uh, has a line that they could possibly mute, uh, we're getting somebody's background noise that may be coming from our panelists. We're not sure, but thanks very much for that. And thank you, John. So we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. And thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets. That way we get others into the conversation. All right. Here comes some brief introductions, a reminder that there's more information on our website, and we've also got some uh, slides uh, with longer uh, int- uh, information, and uh, you can download all of that material. So on the phone from Northwell Health, formerly North Shore Long Island Jewish in New York, Mark Jarrett is Northwell's Senior Vice President, Associate Chief Medical Officer, and Chief Quality Officer. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. All right. Mark is sharing his birth today on WIHI, although she's in a different location today. Fran Gans-Lord, she's Northwell Health's Director of Ambulatory Quality for Medicine and the Medical Director for both the Northwell Health, excuse me, I'll get that out, Northwell Health Premium Network IPA and the Northwell Health ACO. Welcome, Fran. Thank you very much. Heading south, it's great to have Ann Lewis on WIHI today. She's been Chief Executive Officer of Care South Carolina, Inc., since 1980, and that was when there were only four staff members and one location. A lot has changed. Welcome, Ann. Thank you. All right. Normally in the Boston area, but today speaking to us from London, we have Dr. Tejal Gandhi. She's President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Patient Safety Foundation, NPSF Solution Leap Institute, and the Certification Board for Professionals in Patient Safety, all based in Boston. Welcome, Tejal. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. And our final panelist today on the phone, Jennifer Linochi-Edwards is the Director of the Patient Safety Focus Area at IHI. She's really helped quite a bit in this space and also with uh, bringing this group together. So we got a lot of ground to cover. Think of your questions for the second part of the show. We're also going to leave some minutes at the end for Jennifer to talk us through uh, some stuff that's being worked on here at IHI with a patient safety uh, framework for the ambulatory setting. Jennifer, you're going to get our first question, uh, and then we'll definitely get underway. Safety in the acute care hospital world has been dominant for quite a while. I don't think I have to tell that audience that, um, and in part because of some of the high stakes and potential for harm. But that doesn't entirely explain why it's been so hard to identify what constitutes safety in ambulatory care. Jennifer, what do you think has been going on? What what may be some of the uh, challenges there briefly? Thank you. Thanks, Mad. Thanks for having me on the show. So, you know, I think there's a lot of smart people who have articulated why ambulatory patient safety has not gotten the um, the presence it deserves. And I really think it goes back to uh, kind of, I'm calling it my short list of reasons why it's not um, as noticed. And so when you think about primary care and you think about uh, the fact that there are few high-risk procedures and medications administered in the space, the harms don't seem as obvious, and often there's time, there's delays um, in timing between the event and the attribution to the patient harm. Um, when you think about delayed diagnoses, we're thinking about um, no feedback loop that is coming back to providers to say, did I actually diagnose my patient correctly? Um, did they end up going to the emergency department for that cough um, or going to um, urgent care? And I think we've done an amazing job in the past five, 15 years articulating patient safety. And when it comes to mind, people automatically think of acute hospital-based uh, efforts. And I think that's really kind of burned into our practitioners' brains. Um, and so now we're asking them to make a shift um, into a kind of a different type of mindset. And I would say, lastly, if you add the burnout problem that is incredibly clear, at least here in the United States in primary care, we've created a very worrisome situation. And just yesterday, I sat with a primary care provider who shared with me that they worried about their many patients that are on six-plus medications and didn't really have a good mechanism to how to address that. So I would say I think that um, that is the reason why NPSF Northwell and IHI have decided to take on this issue to see if we can get to the heart of the matter. All right. Thank you very much. Um, excuse me, Jennifer. We'll come back to you. I appreciate it. I'm going to turn now to Tejal over in, in London, but mostly uh, working hard uh, here in the U.S. Uh, with NPSF. So, Tejal, tell us what we've learned uh, about research or from research about safety in ambulatory care, where the vulnerabilities for patients may reside, and then kind of what NPSF, Lucian Leap, et cetera, are trying to do to put this more in the spotlight. Thanks again. Sure. Well, let me start with a new report that came out from the National Patient Safety Foundation back in December called Free from Harm, and um, you all can see the, the report here and how to access it. And really, the report was a result of convening experts in patient safety to say, where have we been and where do we need to go? in patient safety. And uh, universally, the group felt we've made progress, but also felt there were at least eight areas that we need to focus on in, in order to accelerate progress in patient safety. And you can see the first four here, ensuring that leaders establish and sustain a safety culture, creating more oversight of patient safety. There's lots of organizations doing uh, patient safety work and you need to be better coordinated. Uh, creating a common set of metrics that reflect meaningful outcomes and increased funding for research. Continuing on to the next four, you'll see number five, addressing safety across the entire care continuum, and I'll come back to that as that's our topic today, but also supporting the healthcare workforce, partnering with patients and families, and ensuring technology is safe and optimized. And as you look at those eight recommendations, um, many of them are relevant to safety across the care continuum as well in terms of the need for metrics, the need for research, the need to support the workforce, partnering with patients and technology and, uh, importantly, culture. So 
you know, think about those eight recommendations globally, but then really also think about how they're relevant for uh, care across the continuum. So when we think about uh, ambulatory safety or safety across the continuum of care, what do we really know from the research? And most of the research has taken place in primary care. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because if you think to all of the settings outside of hospitals, including uh, you know, specialty practices, nursing homes, ambulatory surgical centers, dialysis centers, there's so many other settings that we need to learn more about. But I'll just mention briefly what we know about primary care, which is these three areas. Oh, there you go. These three areas that uh, that really have had the most research done. And the first is medication safety. We know adverse drug events are common in the outpatient setting in primary care, which are injuries due to drugs. We also know prescribing errors um, occur, you know, there's varying ranges, but somewhere in the 10% range or so of prescriptions. We also know that non-adherence is a significant issue where one out of four prescriptions for chronic medications don't get filled. So these are all medication safety issues in the primary care setting. Transitions of care, clearly an important issue. We've all been working on reducing readmissions and we know that adverse drug events, adverse um, uh, events in general occur commonly in that risky time, 30 days post-discharge. Um, so much work going on to try to improve transitions from hospital to home, but I'd also encourage everyone to think about other transitions across the care continuum, such as transitions from a nursing home to an emergency department or from a rehab facility to home. So. All the work we're doing on hospitals to home needs to get translated to some of these other transitions that are high risk. And then lastly, missed and delayed diagnosis. There was a recent report from the Institute of Medicine, also called, also uh, now known as the National Academy of Medicine, that came out in September of last year, really highlighting the issues around diagnostic error. Um, this was an issue that didn't even get discussed really into Errors Human uh, 16 years ago. And so, uh, we need to think more about diagnostic error and its causes. And lastly, we need to think about infrastructure. There's many principles that we've worked on in the inpatient setting, like culture change, event identification, having a systems approach, and all of that needs to transfer to these outpatient settings. And we need to think about how to bring quality and safety expertise into these very varied settings that are often not resourced in the same ways, mostly not resourced in the same ways that hospitals are. Finally, I mentioned research and I do think that the vast majority of research has focused on inpatient settings. As Jennifer said, most of the work in safety is focused on inpatient settings. There's evidence to say that there's a big gap in terms of what we know. And so that's one of the key recommendations we made is that we need to understand more what the types of harms are in the ambulatory setting as well as potential interventions. So in our Free From Harm report, when we talk about addressing safety across the entire care continuum, we really talk about increasing that funding for research, but also expanding the infrastructure across the care continuum so we do have the safety expertise we need everywhere from a three-person primary care practice to a nursing home to a dialysis center. So thanks, Madge, for uh, letting me kick us off. Today. Appreciate that, and thanks for that great overview. Uh, tremendous report. Uh, we can clearly uh, dig into to more of this, and uh, we await uh, your questions and thoughts uh, for Tejal as we move along. All right, we're going to move now to Northwell Health uh, and to Mark Jarrett and Fran Gens-Lord. Mark's going to kick us off, and thinking a little bit about what now both Tejal and Jennifer have both said about remarkably, not remarkably perhaps, but not enough research for sure on what's going on. And yet Northwell, uh, as any good organization would do, has begun to see a little bit what's going on uh, in um, the outpatient area, in part by what, we, what one uncovers sometimes in the acute care setting as well in terms of where problems uh, might originate. So, Mark Jarrett, tell us about that and then uh, turn things over to Fran for some of that on-the-ground experience. Thanks again. Sure. Thank you very much. And really, uh, you know, I can't reiterate enough what Jal and Jennifer said, that we're really at the beginning of a journey. And for what I'm going to say for us as a system, probably, you know, we, 
would clearly apply to even any individual hospital today uh, because there is no standalone. Everybody, you know, everybody interacts and works together. For us, it's a little bit of a, a big uh, hill to climb because uh, we're a large system with 21 acute care hospitals as well as about 450 ambulatory sites. And clearly, for quality and safety, we've always focused on the hospital sites uh, as the major focus. And we're concerned about quality in the ambulatory side, uh, looking at metrics, both whether it was required by you know, GPRO or PQRS or just because we felt it was the right thing to do. Uh, but there really wasn't an emphasis on safety. And at this point in time, it actually works very well. We have, uh, as a system, have gone from just looking at quality in silos, which is inpatient versus outpatient, to starting looking at it uh, across service lines. And the advantage of that is when you look across the service line, whether it be orthopedics or cardiology or primary care, becomes much more patient-centric because, honestly, the patient wants to be safe no matter where they physically are being seen or taken care of, whether it be in the, the office, in the hospital, or even in their own home, uh, and it's not really based on the sites. We, I think that this is a perfect timing for how we take the service line approach to really focus on ambulatory safety. Uh, for one of the things that I think is important, and we're going to maybe talk about a little bit later when Jennifer talks about some of the projects that we're undertaking with IHI, is that we're also looking at the culture. Uh, one of the issues for us is we've had rapid growth on the ambulatory side. Many practices that used to be, you know, out on their own are now under our umbrella. And the question is, how do we change the culture? Those people practice the same way, have their own workflows, and everything's kind of set up. And it works fairly well, but maybe it's not optimal for safety. And in addition, certainly makes it hard to measure if you have 450 different ways of doing things, and we need to kind of standardize it. So the change in culture has also been, been an issue. Uh, finally, and getting to something that Madge said, is we've been using the global trigger tool. And we've been looking at adverse events in the hospital. And what we found is approximately 40% of the, 30 to 40% of the adverse events that occur in the hospital actually had an origin that was present on admission. It could have been from a previous admission. It could have been from a nursing home and then transferred, you know, a patient was admitted to the hospital. But a good chunk of those have to do with care that occurred in the outpatient uh, sites. Uh, so that is really what kind of prompted us to sit down and say, you know, we've been looking at things and we've been concerned about it, but how can we look at this in a very organized way that we can then spread across all of our sites and hopefully also share with our voluntary physicians who may not be, you know, part of our faculty practice or our medical group, but that eventually we can spread to areas such as that as well because obviously we'd like to raise the standard not only for our, the doctors that are employed by the system, but for the doctors that work in our community and that we work with. Uh, and Fran works with a lot of them through our IPAs. So that's really was almost became the genesis for this big push uh, to interact with uh, the National Patient Safety Foundation and IHI to try and see how we can develop robust programs, and part of that is obviously, and uh, again, Jennifer will talk about, is really changing the culture in the offices to make them recognize safety more. And I'm going to turn it over to Fran now, who really has the down-on-the-ground, uh, day-to-day issues that she has to deal with on the ambulatory side, both in her own practice, but also in overseeing the Department of Medicine, which is quite large. Thanks so Great. much, and uh, really appreciate that overview, uh, Mark and, and Fran. Yes, uh, t tell us uh, what, what you're seeing and learning. Thank you. I mean, I think there's a lot, but I wanted to focus on um, something that Jennifer said that, um, you know, since events in the outpatient arena are more varied in terms of time and intensity, it becomes really critical for us to look at this in a systemic way. Um, you know, near-risk misreporting and changing the culture, as Mark mentioned, and getting people to actually submit in everything, report everything that happens so we can look for patterns because there's this tension between the concept of, oh, a one-off 
one-off mistake. I grab the hep B vaccine instead of the hep A vaccine or a more systemic issue. I'm storing the hep A vaccine next to the hep B vaccine and therefore the system is, is making it easier to have harm. And so it, it becomes really critical, especially in the ambulatory arena because, you know, we're not getting thankfully flooded every minute of every day. It's not as intense. It's not as acute in terms of the safety issues. Um, but they're still very, very important. So I, I'm a big proponent for near misreporting and you can't do that without changing the culture because if nobody's willing to put anything into a reporting registry, you're never going to get anywhere. One of the things that I didn't hear spoken about earlier today, although people have spoken about it in terms of ambulatory safety, is that there's a large component of defensiveness and, and making it personal for both the patient and for the provider. And this is something I think we really need to discuss. So if we're talking about med compliance, you know, a patient may blame themselves. And that classic example of a hypertensive who comes in not taking their medicine, but their blood pressure is high, so they get prescribed an additional medicine, and the patient may be sheepish about admitting they're not really taking their medicines, and they have some self-blame in that in that arena and so may be less likely to be forthcoming about their compliance and things like that. And then, as Mark was mentioning, as we consolidate more and as practices group up together more, there are going to be more reports done by patients, by colleagues, and that's actually a good thing. So before in the old world where it's, you know, one doctor in a silo not talking to people outside of their practice, if a patient felt like something was unsafe or wanted to complain, they voted with their feet, they wouldn't call the doctor to complain about the doctor very often. Um, but now where we have the infrastructure and, and patients can feel a little bit that there is a larger group that they can report things into, we're going to see event reporting go up both from the patients and from colleagues. And, and we need to portray this as a good thing because otherwise everyone's going to get defensive and we're not going to move forward. Okay. That's very, very helpful. And uh, I would love to know uh, from our listeners today if that resonates for you uh, in terms of just the safety cultures and how to begin to sort of look at this from a systems approach um, and also the way it is going to all become more visible um, if, and the, the, the good things that will hopefully come from that. All right. Uh, thank you, Fran. Uh, again, uh, we'll, we'll return to everybody, we hope, during Q&A. I'm going to bring in now Ann Lewis from Care South Carolina. Uh, a very different story to tell, in a way, about patient safety and ambulatory care, which is why we're so glad you're here, and and take it away. Thanks. All right. Can y'all hear me? I hope so. Yes. <laughs> uh, greetings from down south, where it's nice and balmy, practically, right now. Um, so I've heard some of the stories and some of the perspectives from lots of different angles. Our angle is going to be one that's significantly different. We're small. We're in the rural south, which is medically underserved with issues around uh, poverty, uh, health literacy, and so forth. As I kind of was preparing for this and thinking back over the past 16 years, I began to realize that our safety journey and our improvement journey at Care South Salon has been really one and the same. And then if I threw reliability into that soup, I think we have what we think is the recipe for care that's safe, effective, efficient, patient-centered, equitable, and timely. And I hope that all sounds familiar with y'all. I'll come back to that in a minute and give you a little bit more detail. Prior to 2000, this pre-2000, and for us, that means from 1980 to 2000, and I've been with the organization during that whole period of time, this really does sum it up. We were asleep in a bed of poppies kind of lull to our uh, external and what was going on. Uh, we thought we had high quality. We didn't know what that meant because there wasn't any data to support that. Um, it, was, it, it, it was just kind of comfortable, but really and truly we were numb pretty much to the whole issues around safety and improvement and reliability. But then something happened. In the years around 2000 and 2003, there was, in our perspective at least, a perfect storm that led to our wake-up call. We actually got kicked out of our bed of poppies. There were four things. The IOM report, the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, 
in that Crossing the Quality Chasm report that I referenced uh, a little bit earlier. Wow, that was really cool. The second one was our decision to move forward to seek and eventually achieve Joint Commission ambulatory accreditation. I'm going to talk about each of these four a little bit more in detail. And then the third one was there was this thing called the HRSA, Health Disparities Collaborative. And last, there was a report that was issued. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine around 2003 by Elizabeth McGlynn and some associates, which revealed that recommended care happened less than 50% of the time. These are the four attributes of our of our perfect storm. The features of this and how it kind of changed the way Care South Carolina looked at uh, improvement in safety. The IOM recommendations actually became the foundation of our strategic plan. We translated into them goals, objectives, some very specific things. Um, they really guided a lot of our work. And of course, the Joint Commission accreditation really catapulted us into a level of performance expectations that were specific around ambulatory care. And we never experienced anything like that before. With the Joint Commission, we started learning the language that many of the acute hospitals were already very familiar with, environmental and equipment safety, patient rights, infection control, risk management, emergency preparedness, this thing called failure modes effect analysis and signal events. Who knew? Two patient identifiers, medication management, reconciliation, you heard Fran talk about look-alike, sound-alikes. Many of all this had, as I said, been the language of hospitals. We had a lot of wake-up calls around safety. And then this third one, this thing about the health disparities collaboratives, these were year-long learning sessions. They were offered by HRSA out of the National Department of Health and Human Services for you folks from around the world. Uh, they focused on chronic conditions most significantly like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, depression, asthma. They provided an eye-opening introduction to two models that frankly formed the foundation that started and began our transformation. The Wagner Chronic Care Model and the Associates in Process Improvement Model for Improvement. These absolutely became the key foundational elements to what we then catapulted ourselves forward with improvement in safety and reliability. All of those six elements of the Wagner Care Model, self-management support, care team, um, actually planning care, doing huddles, things planned around not the provider on the pedestal, but golly gee, the patient, uh, acknowledging that clinical decision report with uh, support was really necessary. Uh, it wasn't just a flavor of the month or a provider preference that there was evidence-based decision models and that, yes, Virginia, there really were going to be electronic health records. We were all paper before then, but it was coming. But we were introduced to something more powerful, in our opinion, and that was a registry. PDSAs, who knew that you could test changes rapidly? Um, it just absolutely rocked our world. And then the fourth, that New England Journal of Medicine article by Elizabeth McGlynn that lit a fire under us that has led us to this 16-year love affair with data. Uh, data, data, data. Data for everything. Transparent data. Patients, providers, staff, board of directors, anyone. Uh, hard to swallow data sometimes. Data that we started learning about. We missed opportunities. Uh, and having to develop systems that were more reliable, that we needed to become more like Toyota, for crying out loud. Who knew? Uh, we had to remember always that even though this love affair with data guided and directed us, that all data really is flawed, but some data is useful. So since those beginning years of 2000 and 2003, the journey has continued. When you look at this next slide, um, you look at it and you'll say, oh, my goodness, that's just too busy for me to digest. But what I'm really trying to say here is that there have been numerous partners, numerous opportunities. There have been a lot of daunting challenges. We do not, did not, and will not continue to do this alone. Um, lots of lots of challenges around our whole system of reimbursement. 
value-based reimbursement in ambulatory care, frankly, has been slow. It's picking up. Uh, you've heard recently in the United States about the CMS chronic care management program, about the physician's quality reporting system. It's picking up. An ambulatory system, was, we seem to be poised now at a crossroads of value-based payment at last. Um, and that's really led to some key successful strategies from, for quality improvement. Uh, we've had to do things piecemeal and patchwork in the past, going after special grants or being very aggressive with managed care incentive contracting, and then never fearing to begging, borrowing, and stealing shamelessly. All these partners that you see on this trend line, uh, we all beg and steal and borrow. All of this comes, though, with a price frequently, and this has been the price of change fatigue within our staff. That's one of the other challenges that I think that if we don't pay close attention to, and we've had some failures in that area in the past at Care South, because we've learned that without a consistent workforce, not one that's constantly turning over, a dedicated workforce, not one that's just in it for the paycheck, this journey will be dead in the water. We've had to find models. You've probably heard this story. You say, well, these people really like structure. We do. We really like structure. Just give us some structure and some rules, and we can kind of follow along with that. Our, our structure around workforce was some concepts that were embodied in Marcus Kaufman, excuse me, Marcus Buckingham and then Curtis Kaufman's book uh, called First Break All the Rules. It gave us a system and a structure by which to focus on the workforce and bring joy back into it. But the big message was just pick something. Pick an organized approach, do it, and stick with it. Because ultimately, we're looking for the right care, for the right patient, at the right place and time. Okay. Well, you took us on a journey, Anne, and, uh, in, in uh, about five minutes, and we appreciate that. Um, I'd really love to encourage people to ask some questions about uh, some maybe some particular uh, moments uh, in, in your journey uh, that various issues that others have raised earlier in the hour about uh, safety things uh, that maybe are coming more into view in some other practices, how you uh, got a handle on that, maybe somewhat earlier than, than others. But thank you. This is the moment where we invite your questions and comments, and uh, I want John to just uh, remind you quickly how to take part in the chat. Thank Thank you. Yep. Make sure that your uh, ch questions and comments are directed to all participants in the send to bar. All right. Thank you. All right. Randy has a question. Um, differences. Um, there are similarities, and of course, there are some differences. And he's asking, I, I'm sorry, Randy, if you're a she, my apologies. He or she, I wonder if it's helpful to think more deeply about the unique infrastructure of ambulatory care, clinical teams. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to get my bar here working. Clinical teams often uh, are smaller in office practice than in large teaching hospitals. It's, um, mistakes may be easier to hide in the office practice. Uh, maybe some other kind of unique things. Tayshia, let me ask you uh, about this um, because you've also, in addition, before you were at NPSF, you've also been part of some large systems yourself and seen uh, uh, some firsthand things in the way uh, Mark and Fran have too. So um, what do you think uh, in terms of uh, maybe some of these culture things and also, um, I don't know, the way in which either people are deliberately, maybe less so, but uh, in some ways things get obscured. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And, and I think we're just going to, we're going to be starting to learn the answers to this as we have more focus on ambulatory. I mean, one of the challenges traditionally has been that often ambulatory sites don't measure their culture at all. Uh, so we don't even know how they, might differ from hospital settings. Um, I think this issue of smaller teams is an interesting one. There might be more of a feeling of wanting to protect each other, but there also, to me, that makes it easier also to have a, perhaps a strong leader and strong culture uh, permeate through because it's a small group. Um, and lastly, you know, in terms of reporting or being able, or sort of covering up errors versus reporting errors, one of the challenges I think that is existing in the ambulatory setting 
is that many times, especially if you have a practice that's not part of a big system, there might not even really be formal or informal mechanisms to talk about errors or report errors. So I guess I'm less worried about covering them up, but more worried that there just aren't those forums where people even have the ability to talk about the issues that are that are going on every day. Okay, thank you. Um, somebody is saying, Dory here, what are some of the most common safety concerns in the clinic setting? I have 180 clinics, and they believe they have no safety concerns. Uh, Jennifer, let me throw that to you first, and then we'll get others uh, to weigh in. Sure. I think um, so. I think the things that come to mind are um, are about um, multiple uh, processes for a similar work stream. So when you think about management of test results, referral management, um, those are things that um, if you go to and and I did this previously before coming to IHI. If you go to practices and you talk about how many different processes are there for managing these different pieces of uh, of care. Um, you'll find that every provider may may have his or her own work stream. Um, and so then there's huge opportunities for drop ball there. Um, medication errors, and you think about the continuum of care. So, um, you know, my father, who is, you know, between an orthopedist and a primary care uh, provider, got uh, prescribed two NSAIDs and was taking them because he didn't know that they were, in fact, the same medication um, and ended up um, nearly in the emergency department. Um, I, and I think that... Um, I think that um, the last thing is um, delayed diagnoses, which, of course, the uh, National Academy just highlighted, but there's not really a good way to measure those things. And so your staff might say, we, we really don't have a good sense of there are no safety problems here, but mostly it's because they're not seeing them. So that, that would be on my short list, Madge. Thank you. And let me just uh, throw this one at you very quickly because this is something near and dear to IHI. Are there global trigger tools for ambulatory care? Next one question. Actually, I was going to bring that up later. So so there, there, so there is a, actually a trigger tool um, and I actually uh, went around to a handful of safety folks uh, around the U.S. to see if anyone's using this trigger tool. And it turns out that not anyone is that we are aware of. Um, but I did get in touch with an organization, actually the NHS Scotland, um, and a, a set of primary care clinics that are actually using the trigger tool in primary care over there. And what they're using it for is not actually to determine their rate of adverse events, which I think is some of the reason why we use trigger tools here in the U.S. is to say what is our rate, not only what our problems are, but our rate, but for those guys to actually identify where there are areas for improvement. Um, but those folks are also armed with improvement capability as well as uh, their their staff now are owners of the beautiful safety glasses that can now see these potential gaps and 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 recognize the need for improvement in these areas so okay thanks um, uh, feel free by the way if anybody wants to jump in uh, Fran I was going to ask you this there's a question about provider team well-being and I think this is exactly the kind of conversation we want to be happening all the various layers and levels of what goes on in ambulatory care that can translate into safety issues uh, what would you say about that should that be is that being paid attention to enough and where does it fall on the list of things that can uh, really raise some problems with safety. Yeah, I know. I think it's actually a very critical piece as, um, you know, as we encourage people to work together and the amount of administrative burden and checkboxing and, you know, uh, things we want to take care of and forms and transitions and data, all of that as it comes together, um, you know, the downside of the team is that you have to make sure that somebody's feeling accountable for a, a specific piece of it. And so with, with everybody feeling overwhelmed and with burnout, which was mentioned earlier, I think that, you know, this concept concept of, well, somebody else should take care of that because I'm already overwhelmed, um, you know, becomes a problem. And unless you focus on, you know, what are the various roles of the team members working together, um, you know, that that's a huge area. And if if there, you know, I, I think there's been tons of data that look at, you know, um, you know, all aspects of it from teams to individuals on the team that if they are, you know, 
engaging more and feeling better and less burned out that they, you know, that there, there's less safety concerns. So, um, you know, I think that it is very important that people take time to do that. And, you know, there are certain practices that I've worked with that have actually in, included mindfulness in their day and, uh, it, it's working for them. I, I think it's something that, you know, we really should pay more attention to. Okay, thanks. Mark, let me ask this question of you uh, from another Jennifer listening. Um, sort of improving safety around results management. I'm looking for possible automated strategies um, to, that avoid having results that only go to one person. Um, and uh, just sort of finding out ways to, uh, that more things, uh, normal things, as this person is talking about, kind of get seen more readily uh, in, in this setting. Well, I think part of it goes back, and much like what we've tried to do in the hospital with safety, is actually going back and looking originally what our workflow is. And building redundancy, if we think about, you know, airplanes, they have a pilot and they have a co-pilot. They have several hydraulic systems. They have several electrical systems. It's that redundancy. And in the inpatient side, for high-risk things, we we do put it in. For example, two signatures for transfusing blood before it's done. Uh, you know, two people have to sign off. In the outpatient setting, it's really become a often, unfortunately, a solo game. And I think using either, you know, using workflows that allow cross-checking and hopefully using technology as it gets better uh, to help promote that in a way that it doesn't become a burden, as, as Fran was saying, I think is very critical. But I think the most important thing is to get the workflows right and then see how you can use technology to improve that rather than just saying, oh, we have this technology, let's just put it in because very often that results in a workflow that actually sometimes has uh, unintended consequences beyond what you originally thought or it just becomes a burden, uh, as, Fran, you know, as Fran was saying, with lots of check boxes, and that doesn't always work. Okay, thank you. Fran, um, I'm sorry, Anne, actually, I want to go back to you. Somebody's asking, uh, what about regulations? Uh, you've got this uh, JACO, um, excuse me, the Joint Commission, oh boy, take it on back, Madge, Joint Commission accreditation. Uh, somebody's asking, where are regulations we can follow for an ambulatory setting? Uh, it, frankly, a couple of people have also mentioned the patient center medical home accreditation or certification that NCQA offers, and 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 so does AAAHC and also the Joint Commission. You know, <clears throat> I know everybody is loath to actually bring on the burden of oversight and and regulatory oversight and so forth, but you know, it it holds our feet to the fire. Um, uh, you know, it creates a, a level of standard expectation that I think is really one to which an organization that's really invested in safety and quality and reliability uh, really needs to pursue. It's, it's, it's a huge commitment. Um, yes, it is very um, strenuous in terms of all the, the requirements and the regulations and so forth. But that ability to say without a, with, you know, with, within the structures offered by those uh, regulatory uh, organizations, whether the Joint Commission, NCQA, or AAAHC, you know, that your organization has decided to tackle and take on some of the highest levels and expectations that, um, you know, are, are evidenced in our, in our United States, I think is, uh, is an aim and mission that, that we owe our patients, we owe ourselves in healthcare, we owe each other as providers. So, regulation, don't fear it. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. I want to remind everybody that uh, Anne, in particular, but others have referenced reports, articles, the New England Journal of Medicine article that was so important by Elizabeth McGlynn. Uh, Vicki chatted that in once, but it's also going to be uh, in our resource document that's captured and uh, put on our website. So for all concerns, so don't despair. We'll, you won't miss uh, any of these important links. Um, I want to ask uh, another question for from the chat, and then Jennifer, get ready. I'm going to kind of turn to you around the, the safety framework that you're working on with others. But a number of people are asking stuff about just almost like self-perception. Uh, you know, 180 clinics, nobody thinks there's a problem. Many people having the assumption, uh, I think patients and providers alike, that the outpatient setting is low risk. Um, and 
even uh, maybe uh, trustees and the governance structure in an organization uh, having more of their eyes on what's going on in the acute care uh part of a, a system. Uh, I'm curious if anybody might want to just sort of take a, a, a gander at that. Um, maybe, um, Mark, your, your thoughts on that as a CQ, CQO? <laughs> Go ahead. Sure. Uh, well, we have a monthly uh, board meeting, a committee on quality of the board, which reports up to the, and then there's another report to the executive committee of the board. Uh, and at that, we present the lessons learned. And classically, we rotate it through each hospital. But I will tell you, once a year, we present at, uh, at least once a year an ambulatory event and go into the effect on ambulatory and have ambulatory talk about their quality and safety issues so that the board members are aware of it. Uh, also, sometimes we find we have cases where it occurred in the hospital, as we, as we discussed earlier, uh, it's linked to care that occurred outside the hospital. And that is emphasized. It's not just presented as a siloed, well, it only occurred in the hospital, that's all they're interested. So we've been working with our board members so that they understand that the care uh, that occurs outside is just as important as the care that occurs inside, and in fact, there's a heck of a lot more outpatient care than there is inpatient care. And even though the acuity may be higher inpatient, the sheer volume outside means that the potential for safety events becomes much higher uh, because even if they're rare, uh, the, volume, the denominator is so large that they still have impact on, on patients. Okay, thank you very much. Well, I think uh, just the, the magnitude of all the moving parts and a lot of things were ticking off, uh, this is uh, sort of the, the domain in which Jennifer and, and colleagues here and, and uh, some of the folks on the phone today have been trying to start to look at a framework. We're going to sort of run you through some slides. Uh, please, we're not doing any near justice to all the hard work that's gone into this, uh, but a, a reminder, you can download all of this, and we'll come back to this topic, but we're going to lay it out, and John's going to throw up the first one, and I'd like uh, Jennifer to just walk us through uh, what we're what we're seeing here, and I also want to just quickly flag, I did love the comment, not love the issue, but uh, noted, uh, somebody said that their office practice should be far more worried about the no-show uh, patients, um, not just from a process uh, point of view, but kind of uh, that as an outlier and uh, potentially uh, presenting safety issues. So I thought that was kind of an interesting um, way to look at that. All right, Jennifer, go ahead. Thanks. So, um, Matt, let me just say, I'm reading the chat, and I'm, like, so excited. I wish we could have this go on for, like, four more hours because these are great <laughs> questions. But I think we could crack the nut with this 442 people on the phone. Um, so I think – so let me tell you about two two big things that happened this year. So the first one um, is not accentuated in this slide, but really talks about – National Patient Safety Foundation, IHI, and Northwell Health making a commitment to ambulatory safety. So earlier this year, we spent a lot of time um, speaking to 50-plus leaders um, all around the country, asking them, why do you think that ambulatory safety has not had its moment in the sun? And, um, and at that point, we were able to gather um, many leaders from Northwell Health as well as um, some five key leaders um, from the U.S., and we um, spent a whole day just thinking about ambulatory safety and thinking about where, where, what are the topics of most importance. If we had to focus primary care and specialty care in certain areas, where would we do it? And, um, and, we, and, and John, to your point, we, in every single one of the topics that we discussed, and we discussed each of them at, at great length, we talk about how might we engage the patient. And so that work is currently ongoing, and we're going to be working with practices at Northwell Health. Um, and, and part of that, um, you know, is really about testing the um, a, a very different approach to patient safety and primary care, because I think that the approach needs to be different. So that is one big thing that's happened this year that I want to highlight. It's great work. Um, it really shows uh, wonderful relationship building between organizations, and it's worth highlighting. The second thing is this very um, beautiful schematic in front of you. And so um, <clears throat> if you're not familiar with this framework for clinical excellence, this was actually created by um, Carol Harridan, Frank Federico, and Alan Frankel. And um, we use it in our patient safety executive program, um, which is a wonderful uh, program that we have that has had over 2,500 graduates. 
Um, and it's a way for us to frame um, an approach to safety. I actually think that this framework is applicable to quality. It's applicable to access. I think it's applicable to multiple problems. Um, I think it's pretty comprehensive. But what it highlights here, and John, if you can just go back a slide, the two outer rings are especially important. So what 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 is proposed here is that there's two outer pieces of this. There's the the role of culture, and then there's this learning system. And of the ten components, they seem to fall underneath these categories. Um, and the key piece being that leadership falls under both. And so that leadership really needs to kind of till the soil and have it ready for the team to be able to create um, improvement around safety quality, whatever the areas that you choose to see fit. And <clears throat> excuse me. And um, so it's really wonderful, and you can see patients are at the center here. In our second slide, we talk, we actually map out exactly what is a definition for each of these areas. And so if you are thinking about, um, if you're thinking about, I need to generally improve, um, you can begin anywhere in this circle to start to say, well, should I begin to improve um, with psychological safety? Should I improve in improvement and measurement? I think what's wonderful about this framework is it allows you to actually look in the mirror and say, as a leader of a team, how am I doing on accountability? Am I accountable? Do I feel psychologically safe um, from my leaders to be accountable? Am I making sure that uh, my, my staff feel psychological safety to bubble things up? So the framework is wonderful. What is what is interesting about the framework is that this is what it actually looks like in real life. So it looks like this beautiful circle that you can call out leadership, you can call out improvement or psychological safety, but this is the clinician's real world. Is that It's all kind of interwoven, but the framework really allows you to think about how you might think about one particular aspect and improve on that one particular aspect, either in your management style, as an organization, as a unit leader, as a nurse on the front line, and so it's, it's really kind of a wonderful thing. So <clears throat> what we've been doing, um, and um, some of my colleagues here at IHI um, have been helping me, uh, have been helping us put together um, drill downs of each of these particular domains for ambulatory safety. So our team spent uh, three or four months sitting with our innovation team and we examined the framework and we said, we know this framework works well in, prime, in, in the acute care space. Does it need to be modified for primary specialty care, for ambulatory surgery, for the post-acute? And what we found was, no, it does not. And so the components still stand um, just regardless of setting. And so we've taken each of these individual items and drilled down into characteristics, but also tools. So because people, when they leave WHA and when they leave, um, you know, any of these informational um, sessions, they say, well, I, I, give me something to try, give me something to test. And so we've taken each of these domains and we've linked them with appropriate tools. So the next piece that is currently ongoing is actually mapping each of these individual components to a scenario. So we've taken an ambulatory scenario where a nurse gives a wrong medication and we've actually said, um, uh, it built this out to say, what does it look like as a frontline nurse in terms of having the psychological safety to escalate this? As a middle manager, how do I receive this? And what does it, what does it look like when I receive it? How am I debriefing the event with that nurse or with that medical assistant, with the staff? How am I really learning about this? And then as a leader of an organization, how am I, uh, you know, promoting this as a piece of my culture, if you think back to the bigger framework? So that is coming. It's not actually uh, ready yet. It's pretty close, but it's not ready for WIHI. So then this is the last thing I'm going to propose. And, and this is when I said that I think that the, um, that the approach is different in ambulatory care. And, I, and I, that, in my mind, is because of the burnout issue. Um, and so at IHI, we, we think a lot about will ideas and execution. And so I believe that because of the burnout issue and because primary care is so inundated with managing the whole patient and, and, and doesn't necessarily always have all the resources to manage the whole patient, the first thing you need to do is understand the will. So go out there, talk to your teams, and ask them, what's the rock in your shoe? What is the problem that you that is making you nuts that when you go home at the end of the day, um, you know, you think, I, I don't know if I can go back there again because it's just so frustrating. And then you need to be able to provide them some capability. So it doesn't have to be the model for improvement, but it needs to be some mechanism 
to improve. If you look at Ann Lewis and, and that journey, they were able to provide some mechanism for improvement to their teams to say, we have a common understanding of when we see a problem, how we're actually going to fix it. Then you get to the idea. So you say, we recognize a problem. Our problem is, uh, say, referral management. And now you bring your team together and you say, what, what are the ideas that we can do that we can, uh, that we can uh, come up with to address this problem? And so if you, you know, a lot of people say, I, I know the answer. I think I know the answer on how to fix this. And so, therefore, I'm just going to institute a policy. We're going to fix it. You don't see me right now, but I'm, I'm uh, uh, putting my hands together saying we're done here. And, you know, and, and I think that we have an answer, so we're not going to do anymore. But really, if you want to think about that learning system, you want to think about that opportunity to engage your team and get them engaged in this learning culture that you want to generate at your practices, you need to hear the ideas. And you need, you need to think about which of these you have the most amount of confidence that, that you will want to start to test using your new capability. And then you allow for execution and you let those, you defer to expertise. Someone um, in the chat mentioned high reliability. You defer to expertise and you say, frontline team, I want you to test this change and we're going to see, we're going to use our, our uh, model for improvement or lean six sigma or whatever you all choose to use. And you're going to, you're going to test this change and see whether or not you get um, whether or not the test is a success or whether or not it's a failure, and you've still learned about it and you celebrate it and you keep on going. And then, and then when you get to five, you've, you've developed this culture, you've developed a nice um, improvement capability, and then you have an opportunity to try something like the Global Trigger Tool for Primary Care, where you say, okay, my team now is wearing the glasses, the special patient safety glasses. We can see the problem. And now we're going to use this tool to help us identify where we have other risks. So that's my theory. And I would say this entire time that we're going through these five steps, we're relating it back to patient outcomes because no healthcare worker went, came in just looking for data. We're, we're all, we all care about the patient. We're relating it back to safety. We're relating it back to quality. And we're relating it back to joy and work because we know these folks are so burned out that if they don't see improvements for their own work life, they're not going to be bought into improving things for their patients. So all right, took, took, took way too much time, Madge. Sorry. <laughs> well, it, it's fine. Uh, I really hope people will uh, thank all for uh, indulging uh, Jennifer here with this work and that's been going on with others here. Take a look at these slides and see if they can sort of help organize even some of the thoughts. Very robust chat. Uh, this is what we always love about WHI is that folks start uh, conversing with one another because each of you in this on this program has some great answers and experience too. All right, we're going to do a quick round robin uh, to wrap up. Uh, we'll thank Jennifer again. Uh, and uh, let's talk to ask you just very, very quickly. You made a good point, which just shows the complexity of everyone's setting, talking about uh, people's real lives and socioeconomic issues and how they can impact, of course, safety issues in terms of what people are able to do uh, with medication, et cetera. You mentioned that in, in the chat. So I want to just some parting words and thank you very much again for your time with us. Uh oh, did we lose Anne? Anne, are you there? Oh, yes, I'm here. Good. I'm sorry. I was I was on my mute. Okay. I, frankly, I can sum it up with my last statement. Uh, it's the right care for the right patient at the right time at the right place. Um, that's our challenge, and what a wonderful opportunity to have this chat with all of y'all today. I really appreciate it. All right. Let's challenge ourselves. Fantastic. I'm so glad you were part of this conversation, too, Anne. Uh, Mark, uh, and then uh, Fran? Uh, I just want to thank everybody for listening, because just looking at the issue, I think, is the first thing we have to do, just to be aware that it really is an issue, and I'm glad everybody's paying attention, and now hopefully will be galvanized to look in their own places. Fran. Yeah, I would um, echo an earlier sentiment that um, providers know the, the areas that 
that patients are vulnerable and where care is vulnerable, and we just have to give them the forum to discuss it and the opportunity to improve it. All right. It's a very, very good point. Thank you again also, uh, Fran and Mark uh, from Northwell Health. And uh, Tejal, thanks so much for joining us today uh, from the U.K. during your travels. Um, the Free From Harm Report, a huge resource, and uh, I guess uh, any, any final thoughts you have, even maybe even uh, looking at the chat today. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I think um, uh, everyone has, has made the right points. I mean, I, I like the chat uh, conversation in terms of how it seems to always come back to culture and to leadership and um, how we prioritize these issues, how we ensure that staff are comfortable speaking up about these issues and, and just want to reinforce the point that, you know, if if people don't think there's an issue, it's probably because they might be afraid to really talk about it. So, um, you know, as we see from malpractice data and all kinds of other data, there's unfortunately plenty of issues that we need to address. And so the first piece is going to be to build that will to really start to understand what the issues are. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Tejal Gandhi. I want to thank all my panelists today and thank you all for being such a terrific audience and so uh, active on the chat and sharing all your ideas. That's part of the, uh, that's the goal of, of, of WHI and Jennifer wondered aloud if we might uh, keep talking for four hours, but we are glad you at least joined us for one hour and let's keep the conversation going. Uh, next up on WHI, we're going to be talking about co-production and Marin Batal Alden from Cambridge Health Alliance will be anchoring that uh, program. Uh, interesting new work and a new way to conceptualize. Co-production is also a way. We didn't talk a lot about the patient role, a uh, little bit, uh, but the patient role is huge uh, in uh, the design of healthcare and in understanding safety uh, and uh, contributing to the culture changes that we're talking about. A reminder, you can download the chat and any slides we used as you log off the program today. We appreciate it if you could fill out a brief survey, let us know how we did, what we can do better. All these elements, including the audio, will be available on our website tomorrow morning. You can also find this podcast on iTunes. Any questions whatsoever, anything unclear, please email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jamison Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. I want to also thank Joanne Endo today for her help on Twitter and her help, as always, with WIHI. So um, as I often say, and it still seems uh, apt, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon. Thanks, everyone.